Today is Lugnasa in the Celtic calendar. It is a, you might say, a pole of masculine energy in the year, kind of a high point of yang energy or masculine energy. And so tonight I'm going to talk about the archetypal masculine. Um, I've, I've talked about the archetypal masculine and archetypal feminine a couple of times before, and I always like to point out that, um, of course, I'm not, I don't want to be understood just as stereotypes, you know, like all men are, should be like this, all women should be like this. Um, I view the archetypal masculine and the archetypal feminine as wells of wisdom, two wells of wisdom that we each have within us. And, and how we relate to those and how we draw on them or identify with one or the other is, is very much up to our own choice. Um, at least in my own life, I've found that the more I go into the archetypal masculine, the more I arrive in myself, and yet it's precisely the archetypal feminine that allows me to go deeper into the archetypal masculine as well as allows me to negotiate the world effectively with the archetypal masculine. Um, I don't know if that's true, you know, that's what's true for me as a straight cisgendered male, you know, and perhaps it might be true for some other straight cisgendered males, I don't know. Um, you know, but God knows what might be true for, you know, folks on the LGBTQ spectrum, you know, people that are identifying different ways I think I would say, though, that we all have these wells of wisdom in us, and and they they demand a kind of reckoning. You know, it's not you know, regardless of how we identify or choose to present us in the work, present ourselves in the world, um, there's a way that we have to reckon with these 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 two wells of wisdom within us. So to begin talking about the archetypal masculine, I'm actually going to go to the commentaries on the I Ching. Um, as you may know, the I Ching is, is one of the world's oldest books. It's a book based on yin and yang. Um, I Ching was, the core text was written about 1300 BC. And so it was already seven or eight centuries old by the time Confucius came along. So it was it was ancient from Confucius's perspective, and and the the core text of the Yijing is is relatively minimal, but in Confucius's time or slightly after, these ten core commentaries were added. And typically, when you buy an Yijing, what you're getting is the core text in these commentaries. Um, the purists would say that Confucius wrote you know, every single word of the commentary. Scholars feel probably he wrote some of them and probably they were elaborated by his school after his death. But this first quote is from um, from the, the Dajuan, the great commentary. So this is a this is not keyed to any particular hexagram in the Yijing, but commenting on on the, the structure overall. And it, it's talking about, it refers to Qian and Kun. Qian is pure yang. Qian is heaven or pure yang. It's, it's the trigram of three unbroken lines. And Kun, 
is pure yin. That's the three broken lines, and they're considered, the, you know, heaven and earth, or father and mother, and all the other trigrams. The the rest of the bagua come from these two. So this commentary says: first, there is Qian. At rest, it is alone and concentrated. In motion, it is straight. This is how what is great comes into being. Then there is Kun. At rest, it is infolded. In motion, it opens out. This is how what is broad and vast comes into being. And so a few things just fascinate me about that that short quote. Um, The archetypal masculine, when it's at rest, it's alone and concentrated. You know... And there's, I think there is an aspect of the archetypal masculine that, that gets more concentrated going to an alone space, you know, and it's, you know, it's the, the conventional idea of a man going into his man cave, that sort of thing. Um, and then, the, then when it moves, it's straight this idea of this archetypal masculine being very directed, focused, you know, purposeful in motion, striking out in a particular direction toward a particular goal. And one word I want to introduce here, and I want to, in, in a way, try to rescue this word a little bit, is the word aggression. Um, aggression etymologically means simply stepping toward. Um, and of course a lot of aggression plays out in, in you know, a lot of what gets called aggression plays out in um, incredibly destructive and harmful ways but if the energy if that very strong masculine energy of aggression is balanced with compassion with vulnerability with sensitivity with caring then that forceful energy can go off into the world and it's not going to be abusive to others. You know, I think of a man like Malcolm X, who was, who had tremendous heart quality, but spoke in a, in a very forceful way and, and communicated his, his point very powerfully. So it, it, it's related to being assertive, but it, it has a stronger edge than that. Um, you know, how to be forceful in, a, in the world without being harmful or without, you know, stepping on toes or that sort of thing. Similarly, it's, it's about almost a mode of exploration, about going out and reaching a goal, you know, like, you know, say astronauts going to the moon, something like that, or even, uh, you know, intellectuals, you know, Newton stepping, you know, purposely stepping into a new understanding, a new realm of understanding. Um, and I'll say that there's a, a quality of, you might say, archetypally masculine exploration, which is more directed and focused, going straight out toward that goal, versus the archetypally feminine mode of exploration, which is much more um, multidirectional, much more like, what's here? What's, you know, look around in every direction. What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Kind of exploration. Um, you think of the... Uh, 
the traditional distinction of hunter versus gatherer, for example. Um, and really, both of those modes of exploration are incredibly valuable, and, and each one is suited to a different situation, you know, and to what extent can we switch, to what extent can we hold both and, and switch, you know, easily from one to the other? You know, that very directed focus, get to the goal kind of mode versus the stop and just check out everything that's here kind of mode. Another distinction that, that fascinates me is the traditional marriage vow. And the traditional marriage vow, of course, is the man swears to love, honor, and serve. The woman swears to love, honor, and obey. Um, now, serve, I think, is a word that speaks very deeply to the archetypal masculine. And I think that's a very powerful word, um, a powerful word to drop into. The, the word obey, um, perhaps in, in other contexts, it might have had something positive. We can reject that word. A word I'd like to offer in a substitution rather than obey is surrender. And, and it's tricky because, how to say it? In our popular understanding, surrender means giving up. It means like um, resignation. Oh, I can't do anything about it. I give up. You know, that, that's what we think of when it's a surrender. It's a, it's a helpless place. It's a, it's a not very fun place. Um, and in a way, I almost see this denigration of the word surrender as one of the many ways that society um, denigrates the archetypal feminine. Because in fact, surrender when it's intentional is incredibly powerful. You know, and I, I've certainly had experiences, I think we've all had experiences of you know, times in meditation or times in life where all of a sudden I'm able to let go of some way of being, let go of some limiting perspective, and suddenly it's like a whole new world opens up, you know? Like there, there's a transformative quality to surrender. Um, the Arabic word for surrender is quite simply Islam. The name of the religion means surrender, you know, and, and relatedly, a Muslim is one who surrenders, one who surrenders to Allah. Um, you know, whatever we might think of Islam, I don't think anyone thinks of Islam as a, as a wimpy, weak, weak religion, you know. It's, uh, that, that's more a valorization of, why, of um, an understanding of how powerful surrender is. Another quote I'll share. This is, this is from another commentary, and it's specifically a commentary on, on Qian itself, on heaven, the hexagram of heaven, pure yang. The way of Qian is change and transformation so that each being attains its true nature and destiny, and the union of the great harmony is preserved. Qian is high above all beings, and thus all are united in peace. And so another kind of problematic word that I want to bring up here. I think one thing that's associated with the archetypal masculine is hierarchy. And 
you know, and I know there are voices in society that say hierarchies are always exploitative and they're patriarchal and they're used to, you know. And and granted, if you look over the past 3,000 years, hierarchies do not have the best track record. Like, we can find lots of really bad hierarchies. Um, but one thing I'll point out is that hierarchies are not a human creation. All the higher mammals have hierarchical relationships. And in fact, even insects have hierarchies. In other words, there's millions, even even tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of years of evolutionary wisdom behind hierarchies. Um, and and this ideal that's presented, again, I'll, I'll read part of it. The way of, of Qian, the way of heaven is change and transformation so that each being obtains its true nature and destiny. You know, this ideal that the hierarchy is set up in such a way so that each person in the hierarchy receives the full support to become who they are. And that sounds, you know, idealistic and pie in the sky and how the hell does that happen? But, you know, that's exactly the situation I'm trying to create in my high school classroom. You know, I'm paid money to establish a hierarchical relationship. Like, it's very important that I'm the one in charge of my classroom, you know, that there's no confusion about that. And yet, the nature of the, the authority that I'm trying to develop is to bring out the, the most, to bring out everything that is wonderful and glorious about each one of my students, you know? So it's not about my ego trip at all. It's about how, how do I serve, you know? So again, this 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 idea of serving in the archetypal masculine, you know, so that that is that's a small scale, but that's an example of a hierarchy that can actually be life affirming and 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 nurture wholeness in others. Another aspect of that is the just being high above others, and this is like the 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 you know the Zeus or Apollo who has the you know the bird's eye view the up the up high view view of the whole picture kind of thing um and that's very much an archetypal masculine position of stepping back and getting a view of the whole picture an archetypal feminine by contrast is the understanding you have down in the weeds in the rough and tumble in the in the mix in the in the messiness of everything and both of, again, both of those are value, valuable. One is not better than the other. Depending on the situation, there are certain things that we only understand when we're on the ground, when we're in the mix, when we're, when we're in the middle of all the messiness versus other things that we only understand when we're remote and looking at the whole from a distance. You know? And again, how comfortable are we with each one of those modes? Another aspect of the archetypal masculine, I would say, is is kind of solidity and containing. Um, and a lot of the, the more repressive aspects has been about, you know, blocking access, confining, this sort of thing. Um, in some ways, holding a container for something can be, a, can be an aspect of the archetypal masculine holding a container for a process to happen. Um, and in relation to the archetypal feminine, the archetypal feminine is a lot about flow. Well, that flow 
if it's just if all you have is flow, that flow might just be trickling out in all directions, that kind of thing. But a little bit of structure might concentrate that flow so it's as powerful as a fire hose. Or the flow might be the structure more might be like irrigation that brings that flow to the specific places where it's needed, you know, that sort of thing. And so a little bit of structure can make the archetypal feminine that much more powerful as opposed to, you know, in the past when that flow was just jarred up and stored on a shelf, that kind of thing. So I'll say a little bit also just practically about, I haven't said a whole lot about toxic masculinity yet. Um, certainly, a, you know, someone acting with aggression, with, you know, if you act with aggression without any heart quality, without any empathy or anything, then, you know, just that raw aggression is going to cause a lot of harm. But to, to talk about, you know, ways that it plays out in our society, I want to frame two different kinds of problematic males in our society, two sort of complementary uh, camps which I'll call the bad boys and the nice guys. (laughs) And the bad boys are men who are in touch with their passions, who are confident, who are, you know, they don't need anyone else's permission to go after what they want. You know, they know what they want. They're going to go after it, you know. And, but those men are, are typically shut down in, vulnerability, the vulnerability around sensitivity, around empathy, around anything around intimacy or connection. So these men are very dynamic and exciting. Women have great crushes on them, get very excited about them. Sometimes these men are having serial, you know, sexual connections. You know, every woman thinks, oh, I'll be the one who changes him. But of course, you're not going to change him because he doesn't want to deal with his own stuff. You know, in in the extreme case, those are the men who are abusive, who think who are feel so entitled to what they want. You know, it's like, what you're not you're not going to give me what I want. You know, I'll show you like this kind of thing. Um, and so that is that is one um, one flavor of toxic masculine. On the other side, there are the nice guys. Now, the nice guys are totally in touch with with heart, with generosity, with, you know, um, empathy and sensitivity and all that, but they feel they're not in touch with their passion. They're not in touch with, you know, they, they need permission around, you know, getting their needs met, this kind of thing. Um, and so typically those men have a lot more trouble connecting with women. Women love to be friends with them, but, you know, are friends with them rather than forming romances with them. Um, in a friendship or even a, in a romance, that man may well be um, engaging in what's called covert contracts. You know, in other words, I'm just going to behave nice and I'm going to be really generous and friendly and all that, and I'm going to hope that you satisfy the need that I'm too afraid to articulate. You know? And then after a certain time, this man might suddenly explode in resentment, you know, essentially you haven't, you haven't satisfied the need that I never even told you about, (laughs) you know, like this kind of thing. Um, In an extreme case, 
those men are completely rejected by all women and just sink into depression, sometimes suicide, or sometimes if they're angry, those are the men who become shooters. You know, the men who are just so, so lost in pain that they shoot up a bunch of people and men kill themselves, that kind of thing. It, it's very sad that we, we live in a society that allows people to drown in their own pain. I'll say that the, the, um, the bad boys and the nice guys in many ways are opposites. They each, each one needs what the other has in a way. But of course, they, they, they don't really talk to each other because, in fact, there's kind of mutual disdain between them. Um, the bad boys, the worst of the bad boys, um, I mean, they're not going to be interested in anything I have to say in a Dharma talk, but, you know, at, at some point, if they run into a health crisis or, a, you know, tangle with the legal system, something like that might give them pause. Um, the nice guys, I could certainly recommend several, several good books for them. Um, yeah, so at this point, I think I'll just share the quote sheet. The quote sheet begins with the two um, Confucius comment, Confucian commentaries on the Yijian. So I've already read those, but you can ponder those. The uh, Yijing, I'll just say parenthetically, the Yijing is an astonishing book, and and the depth of it is is mind-boggling. From the great Roman Stoic writer Seneca, no man is unhappier than he who never faces adversity, for he is not permitted to prove himself. From that remarkable man, Frederick Douglass. The lessons taught by human experience is simply this, that the man who will get up will be helped up, and the man who will not get up will be allowed to stay down. Personal independence is a virtue, and the soul out of which it comes, and it is and it is the soul out of which it comes the sturdiest manhood. <coughs> From Walt Whitman, who, who um, was a lover of the masculine in many ways, the male is not less the soul nor more. He too is in his place. He too is all qualities. He is action and power. The flush of the known universe is in him. Scorn becomes him well. Appetite and defiance become him well. The wildest, largest passions, bliss that is utmost, sorrow that is utmost, becomes him well. Pride is for him. The full-spread pride of man is calming and excellent to the soul. Knowledge becomes him. He likes it always. He brings everything to the test of himself. Wherever the survey, whatever the sea and the sail, he strikes soundings that last only here. Where else does he strike soundings except here? From Theodore Roosevelt, who, who arguably was the most manly of our presidents. Um, we do not admire the man of timid peace. We admire the man who embodies victorious effort. The man who never wrongs his neighbor, who is prompt to help a friend, but has those virile qualities necessary to win in the stern strife of actual life. 
from Carl Jung. I've noticed that people usually have not much difficulty in picturing to themselves what is meant by the shadow, even if they would have preferred instead a bit of Latin or Greek jargon that sounds more scientific. But it costs them enormous difficulty to understand what the anima is. They accept her easily enough when she appears in novels or as a film star, but not as she is understood when it comes to seeing the role she plays in their own lives, because she sums up everything that a man can never get the better of and never is finished coping with. Therefore, it remains in a perpetual state of emotionality which must, must not be touched. The degree of unconsciousness one meets with this connection, to put it mildly, is astonishing. Hence, it is practically impossible to get a man who is afraid of his own femininity to understand what is meant by the anima. And I'll say Jung was writing in a... He was really writing in a, a hundred years ago, you know. He was writing in a world in which gender roles were much more rigid and defined. And I think in that time, it was rare for a man to even begin to cultivate any kinds of qualities that were archetypally feminine. We live in a very, very different world now. And so I think it's, you know, what the anima is, is much more accessible to men now than it was in Jung's time. And I think Jung would have been very surprised. From Gandhi, manliness comes not in bluff, bravado, or loneliness. It comes from daring to do the right thing and facing the consequences, whether it is in matters social, political, or other. It consists in deeds, not words. Herb Goldberg said, The male has paid a heavy price for his masculine privilege and power. He is out of touch with his emotions and his body. He is playing the rules of the male game plan, and with lemming-like purpose he is destroying himself, emotionally, physically, psychologically, and physically. Matthew Fox said, when the sacred masculine is combined with the sacred feminine inside each, each of us, we create the sacred marriage of compassion and passion in ourselves. Robert Moore says, submission of the power of the mature masculine energies always brings forth a new masculine personality that is marked by calm, compassion, clarity of vision, and generativity. Waller Newell said, We don't need to reinvent manliness. We only need to will ourselves to wake up from the bad dream of the last few generations and reclaim it in order to extend and enrich that tradition under the formidable, formidable demands of the present. Antonella Gambato said, Our culture now is one of masculine triumphalism in which trans-historically feminine expressions, empathy, sweetness, volubility, warmth, are seen as impediments to a woman's professional trajectory in many sectors. And it, it really is, is sad in some ways that at least some, of the, at least some of the first movements of feminism have been about empowering, men, empowering women to become competent to be successful in the archetypally masculine structure in, in, you know, and often in a, in a masculine structure that is harmful to men and harmful to women, you know, and it, I think it's much more important that we think about 
how do we change those structures rather than just how do we get good at those structures? You know? From race Mamenikin, and this is this is this is in in some ways uh, a comment about nice guys, although this this quote really applies to both men and women. We think emotional nourishment comes from getting our needs net met, but that's not how life works. Emotional nourishment comes from growing up. The quest for fulfilling our emotional needs can be endless. We get stuck on a hamster wheel chasing one form of fulfillment after another. People who build their lives around meeting their emotional needs tend to be anxious, fearful, and frustrated. In contrast, people who have accepted the clean pain of growing up have a relaxed readiness and an easy confidence about them. Their focus is not on acquiring fulfillment, but on being fully present. Because of that presence, whatever happens has the potential to be emotionally nourishing. And finally, Dr. Denise Ryan says, The redefining of the sacred male principles, the dawn of a new vibrant light, a mature masculinity that is not abusive, domineering, or grandiose, but generative, creative, and empowering. He is vulnerable without shame, revealing that, he has dis- that his discarded armor of invulnerability was nothing more than an illusion that hid his true power. He is now free and open to rediscover and reconnect with the power of nature and the cosmos. He is ready to establish true relationships with authenticity and integrity. The great mystery moves through him, reminding him constantly that he it is and it is him. He is a force of nature first, a man second, a spear of Gaia herself. No amount of perceived invulnerability can guard against it.